Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the Talkie Bit. When it comes to gift giving, different families have different practices. State the obvious. It'd probably be fair to say even wildly different practices. Um, even in my limited experience as somebody who, you know, by virtue of being married, married person as part of two families, uh, these things can be quite varied within that circle. So, for instance, and to be perfectly clear, this next part is entirely hypothetical. In some families, gifts are treated as secrets. They're surprises. And I'm going to draw some extremes here. Nobody has any idea who might be giving gifts to whom, what those gifts might be, how much they might cost. It's, it's, it's a, basically a free-for-all in, those, in that regard. And in other situations, gift-giving might be more prescribed. There's a name draw, there's a, there's a budget, people submit lists of things they would like that fall within that budget, and whoever has their name is expected to get them something on the list within the budget. Right? So some, some guidelines. Now on the plus side of the last method, the prescribed one, is the reduced chance of a gift ending up you know, in the bottom of the closet, right? like unwanted and un, unused. And on the minus side might be the reduction of surprise. So the loss of the I, I never would have imagined moments because you did imagine them. You put them on a list. So the solution might be maybe a, li- a little bit of a blender, right? So we have a list, we have a budget, we have all that good stuff. And sometimes there's sort of an implicit or maybe explicit permission to go outside of that. People still get one another gifts that are a surprise. So you get the practicality and the surprise. You get the stake and the sizzle, right? You, you kind of get the whole thing. Anyway, I'm just sort of playing around here with a seasonal illustration, and I'm probably getting myself into a corner that might be hard to get out of. So let me, let me see if I can get to the point. So for most of us in this community, and even to a lesser degree, I would say, on the continent, we, we grew up around the traditional Christmas stories, which are, of course, the Christian stories that are found at the beginning of the books of Matthew and Luke, and they sort of form this launch pad for stories about the life and teachings of Jesus and for the religion that grows up around those over the course of a couple thousand years. If we find ourselves wondering if those stories, those old stories, still hold any sort of cultural currency, I would suggest either a quick trip to the mall uh, to listen to the music that's playing everywhere in this season, or maybe a little swing past the offices of Canada Life to check out those camels that sort of mysteriously appear on their porch at this time of the year. <laughs> that one always cracks me up. Anyway, it's quite possible that we've, we've also had in that experience of those stories and what the cult kind of currency they hold or don't, we, we've probably, some of us at least, had untold numbers of experience where somebody has told us what those stories should be taken to mean and what they're there to teach us. Here's a story, and here's, here's what we should learn from it, right? So humor me for a moment and think of that whole gift exchange bit as a metaphor for the way these stories are often spoken of. They can easily become something akin to the sort of list and budget version of gift exchanging. 
And to be clear, there's a lot of good that can come from that sort of an approach, but what gets potentially dialed down is the never saw it coming part. And to be fair to the metaphor, along with never saw it coming, sometimes comes, didn't really want that and have no use for it, right? So don't ignore that part of it either. So here's where I'm taking this. I want to suggest that some gifts, by way of potential lessons or learnings, making the assumption that those can be good things, might be unexpected finds in those stories. I understand that that also means that they may be unwanted, that they might be the wrong color or size, they might just be plain kitschy, they might be offensive. They weren't on the list. But I'm going to offer some of them anyway. And then, as with the moment where you unwrap it and go, hmm, how shall I react? You get to decide what to do with them. I should add that I'll be working with the stories as we find them in the contemporary text. Um, I'm going to do that without any of the potentially interesting critique about what kinds of stories they are, where they've come from culturally, what they might have meant in their original context, and some of those things. I'm just going to take the words pretty much as we have them on the page and treat those as the narrative. There's a few of these. So I'm, I'm going to call these all unexpected gifts. Unexpected gift number one, saying yes can change your life. In the version of these traditional stories that Luke tells, and if I, if I sort of would say I still have a favorite gospel writer, it's definitely the author of Luke. I, I, the perspective of Luke is the one that I feel like is most resonant for me, uh, not least of all because Luke's the writer who's like, that's stories for everybody, which was news at the time. So in the, in the version of the stories that Luke tells, he starts with Mary's perspective on things and her experience. And so right at the beginning of that story, God sends the angel Gabriel to visit Mary and tell her that she's going to have a child conceived by the divine. All right, so if you know me at all, uh, I hope you can appreciate that it's a matter of considerable restraint for me to just stick to the story as we have it. And this is only the first one, but that's what I'm going to do. So after freaking out a bit, because, I mean, well, she's having a conversation with a non-corporeal being who is telling her that she's going to get pregnant without any other person getting involved and that her kid's going to be part human and part God and people will be able to tell. That's all there in the story. Okay. After all of that happens, she says, may it be as you have said, which is just really a dressed up version of yes. Right? It's a fancy formal way of saying yes. So what is she saying yes to? Like, really? Because from our vantage point, which for many of us amounts to having read the last chapter of the novel and seeing how it ends, she has no idea what she's in for. And I'm not just talking about her lived experience. I'm talking about well beyond that. So I've had the incredible privilege of visiting quite a few of the great expressions of religious architecture in the European Christian tradition. And many of them, as well as lots of the art that's associated with those same periods in that same tradition, in in many of those settings, most, I find some striking representation of Mary. In the buildings themselves, it's often architectural, it's sculptural. And some of those pieces are, are utterly remarkable. And when you attend to them, at least when I attend to them, I feel like the word venerated is too weak. I, I don't think the word worshipped is too strong. And the visible passion with which so many of those artists and artisans have expressed their devotion, what do you think 
Mary would have said if she could have seen all of that coming, never mind what she would have said if she could have seen the suffering that would come. Now, as we have the story, someone tried to tell her that this yes would rend her heart, but by then it was already too late. The, the story was in full flight. Now, among the other potential lessons in a story like this is the reminder that when we say yes, we typically don't know what we're talking about. Life is not certain, and even if we take the story as we have it, the Mary story, even if we take that story at face value, life isn't certain even if the divine is all tangled up in the details, right? Any other perspective than that, I believe, suggests that we're simply pawns and we're not beings with agency, and the fact that the central character in this narrative, as Luke tells it, seems to be given a choice by the angel is instructive. The story does not assume Mary's yes. It it hinges on it. That's interesting. I think that it simply won't do to try to make some distant being responsible for our decisions when things don't turn out the way we would prefer them to. There is a power in our yes, and with that power comes ownership of the whole story, good, bad, and otherwise. And saying that the divine was mixed in there somewhere, consulted, gave us direction, etc., doesn't appear to undo that. Like I said, not all of the gifts are necessarily welcome. But that's unexpected gift number one, saying yes can change your life. Unexpected gift number two, The religious rules don't always cover all the contingencies. (laughs) In the Matthew version of the story, we start with the guy's perspective. And so we start with the perspective of the wronged suitor, the jilted fiancé, the man who has to decide whether love is bigger than the rules or not. Because the thing is, Mary's pregnancy means that according to the religious rules of the culture and time, Joseph has every right not to follow through on the betrothal. And it's not just about selling the ring on Kijiji. Like a betrothal culturally in this setting is a, is a deeper level of commitment than an engagement, if we can get our heads around that. The English translation that I reread the story in talks about him, quote, exposing her to public disgrace. Now, he wouldn't just be within his religious rights to do that in the context of this story. He was supposed to do that. Except that the angel gets involved again and tells them to ignore all of that and go ahead with their marriage. So let's just, let's just stand back from this a wee bit. If you grew up religious, don't answer this out loud, just think about it. If you grew up religious, whose authority was invoked around doing what was right? When we're, when we're little, if we're in a sort of religiously coherent household, then perhaps, or maybe even not coherent, but, but perhaps that early authority was our parents, right? Their, their conception of what was right was the one that was visited on us, and sometimes that was the explanation for why we did something or was regarded as right was as abrupt as because I said so. Sometimes we got a fuller explanation, but that's often where it started. But eventually, as we're getting older in, in our growing up experiences, if we push back, the, the source of authority kind of tends to get ratcheted up, right? 
levels up a little bit. So maybe it becomes uh, a teacher or it becomes a pastor or a priest perhaps or depending on the religious perspective and what's, what's, you know, what's backstopping it, it ends up being something like because God says so or it's, it's written this way, right? So here's Joseph described in this story as a, quote, righteous man. In other words, a man who's committed to doing what is right as they understand it and have been taught it and as their context indicates. And they are being told by an angel that in this situation, the rules don't apply. For a righteous man, that is one hell of a dilemma. <laughs> right? Which righteous? Like, and says who? Put, put yourself in Joseph's shoes for just a minute as we have the story. This rules don't apply here message comes to him in a dream. I don't know about you, but when I eat too much too close to bedtime, I have more and less pleasant dreams. I'm not generally inclined to wake up and make big life decisions based on them. Except maybe a life decision like stop eating at six, you know. Now, I understand that there are lots of years between that story and this one, not to mention very different understandings of what dreams are, and many cultures you know, come at dreams very differently as far as what they mean and what their import is and so on. So let me just shift this over a little bit. And again, ask a question just for your consideration. If not dreams, then what kinds of experiences have you had that made you question some because God said so rule in your life? Do you ever wonder if it's okay to call that rule into question or just to like end run it entirely, which is what happens in this story? Because if you ever wonder about that, and if your authority historically was because God said so and it's written down right here, just come back to the story because your answer is right here. It's in the story. Sometimes the religious rules don't cover all the contingencies no matter what religious authority said so. So that's unexpected gift number two. Sometimes the religious rules don't cover all the contingencies. Unexpected gift number three, there can be dignity and improvisation. As life experiences go, one of my memorable ones was visiting the traditional location of the stable in Bethlehem. Now, air quotes, uh, you, you can't see it if you're listening to the podcast, but air quotes around traditional location comes with a, just a little, a little dash of cynicism. Because after you've been sold souvenirs at a few traditional locations in a row, you start to wonder just who decided what the traditional location was uh, and how they you know, got the, uh, the rural municipality to sign off on it. But, but th- there's also plausibility to many of these things, right? There's, there's a reason why they stick when they stick. For me, what made that experience memorable was not kind of going, this is it, so much as the fact that the stable wasn't a stable at all. Uh, it was in fact, a cave, and I think that's being generous. It was more like, I don't know if you've ever had occasion to, to try to find shelter outdoors in mountain areas where you were really thankful just for sort of an open overhang that was tall enough to stand under or even sit comfortably under. That's what that is. If you go to Bethlehem and go visit the traditional location of the stable, that's what it is. It's just a big open overhang. It's, it's about maybe about two-thirds as long as that wall, and at its highest point, no higher than the bottom of the duck. Most of it's quite a bit lower than that. It's, it's the kind of place where you could find shelter from a very calm, straight-down drizzle. And that's about it. It's pretty open. 
It is nothing like the warmly lit barn on the greeting cards at all. So as we have the story, it is not the kind of place where an expectant young woman wants to deliver a child. It's not even a second choice place. It's it's a last choice place unless you count like on the side of the trail on the way to there. Like it's it's really pretty not great. And yet in the story, this is where the baby is born. Now, how did we get from that to a barn filled with bucolic herd animals? I mean, that's too long a story for today. But here's my takeaway. Let's just say that somewhere in this story as we have it, there's the historic fact that a couple of thousand years ago, a baby was born under improbably difficult circumstances who grew up to take a run at reforming the dominant religion of his people group and whose teachings still guide millions of people's lives and are the subject of deliberation and debate in millions more. I think that's probably a fairly defensible perspective. And it all started with a rather ad hoc, rather desperate, improvised solution to a pressing problem. Just because our solution isn't a shiny one doesn't mean that something important or even life-changing might not come from it. There is dignity in improvisation. Unexpected gift number four. The truly big gifts aren't about the price tags. Sometimes, no, most of the time, I find Christmas marketing wearisome. There are noteworthy exceptions. We're going to actually take a look at one of those next week. Now, I'm aware of the trope that, you know, it's the thought that matters. And I, I would also say, trope or not, there's, there's some, something of merit to that notion. Like, the thought does, in fact, matter. In the stories that we're exploring Today, I'm captivated by the simple note in those stories mentioning that Mary wrapped her newborn in strips of cloth and laid him in a feeding trough. It was, as we just considered, an act of desperate improvisation. It was also an act of protection, of deliberate nurturance, of you know best practice as interpreted under the present circumstances, of I'm doing what I can here. It was a gift, not just homemade, but also homegrown in the sense that even whatever garment got shredded to come up with the strips of cloth was in this culture and time the direct result of someone's personal hands-on labor in making the fabric. There's sort of no distant monetized part to this story. It's very personal. It, has, it had nothing to do with wealth and a great deal to do with love. And we can't seem to get it out of our collective imaginations, even if we do want to soften the blow with warm lights and you know happy sleepy sheep. To me, what it brings to mind is that Red Cross campaign, uh, blood, it's in you to give. Little tweak takes us to something like love, it's in you to give. The price tag for that gift might be no more and no less than the willingness to work with whatever we have on hand. The truly big gifts aren't about brackets, the monetary closed brackets. Unexpected gift number five. Sometimes even world changers have to flee with only what they can carry.
This one's this one's uh, feels especially tender for me uh, at the moment. Um, not least of all because Corrine's work, uh, a great deal of it, is with people who are new to Canada, um, many of whom are here because they're fleeing conflict. And uh, we had enjoyed a houseful of those folks last night. When, when these princes of Persia, you know the ones from the roof of Canada Life's porch, when these princes of Persia show up looking for the king of the Jews because their astrological observations told them to do it. And by the way, next time, should this be part of your life, if anybody's given you shade about making a decision based on your horoscope, you can just refer them to this story and, and see how the conversation goes. Big decisions based on the movement of the stars. So what, when these folks show up because their observations of the heavens, of the star movements, tell them that they should, and they show up in this particular place and they talk to the current king, Herod, who, by the way, was demonstrably paranoid uh, to the point of killing his own family members because he's worried they're after his job, and who decided to, you know, post his visit, order the murder of lots of kids in order to get the one that might be a threat to him or perceived threat, an event we now refer to as the slaughter of the innocents. When all of that happens in the story, Mary and Joseph and their family have to flee for their lives because their kid falls within the death squad's criteria. Is this starting to sound too much like the evening news to anybody else? In any case, like so many refugee stories, the story for the family in question is about getting to somewhere the despot can't and their agents can't reach you. And doing that under the conditions that mean that you're leaving with whatever you can carry and you're pulling it off however you can pull it off. And I won't take time now to get into all the details, but in brief... Those details include living in another country and culture until you hear that the ruler is dead, that the slaughtering of the children is over and is safe to go home, and then returning home to find that the new ruler is still a bloodthirsty tyrant, and then moving again to somewhere that you can actually stay alive and eke out a living. So when I, the, the Sudanese refugees in particular that I've had the privilege of getting to know, this like, Go to this country. Oh, that country's not safe. Go to this camp. Oh, the war moved. Got to go. Right. So, the, we, meeting kids over the years uh, for us as a family who, who spoke four or five languages and a, another handful of dialects that they learned because they kept landing somewhere where they had to learn a new language and a new right. So, this is that story. Here's a question: Do you and I suppose that anyone who would have met this family anywhere in this process would have had a clue? that the probably two-year-old that they had with them would, you know, alter the course of religious history? Probably not. You can't tell by looking, right? And in any case, it's not about reading the story backwards, is it? It's about working for the good that might be in the future with whatever you can carry. Sometimes even world changers have to flee with only what they can carry. I had two more when I was writing this that had to do with Herod in particular. I'm going to leave them, by the way, in the interest of time. But, uh, but I couldn't leave out one last one that works with some of my personal favorite characters from the story, those, those Persian princes, you know, colloquially known as the wise men. Pretty sure that's not what the people that they left when they set out were calling them. But we don't know that, do we? Unexpected gift number six. You can have your world rocked by another spiritual tradition and you can still find your way home. Now, some of you have heard me explore this before. 
Um, so if you need to check the messages on your phone, this is probably a great time to do it. These princes show up in the story, having traveled for years from another country, another culture, another religion. They've had to navigate the local political landscape as well as the geographic one, only at the end of all of that to find some ordinary family and their toddler that the star signs told them was worth going through this for because they were future king of this nation. Not, not a present-day king. They already had a meeting with the present-day king as part of the process of finding the kid. And in the end, they would have to flee that king because they told him that they were looking for this one. If you think about it just for a minute, the whole story just sounds completely bonkers. So these guys are so convinced that their gods are steering them right that they hit the road in search of a future king of a nation that is presently governed by someone with no relationship to the child in question who is supposed to be the prophesied future Messiah of the nation that is under the thumb of the current ruler who governs at the pleasure of the Roman overlords who will end up deposing his successor because even he is too bloodthirsty for Rome. There. Cole's notes. It's a political, cultural, and religious mess of epic proportions. And yet, when they find this kid that they're looking for, they worship him. In other words, whatever they understand this experience to be, and we don't have a lot of information about that, we know that it includes a material acknowledgement that there is more going on in this moment than meets the eye and that calls for some kind of response. They are quite literally moved by the experience. And then, as we have the story, they go home. They are impacted, but as far as we can tell from the narrative, they also find their way home as Persian astrologers who believe that the divine speaks to the movement of stars. They don't convert. They don't take up the mythology of the Jewish Messiah. They don't move in to stay. The story, I wish we had. The chapter that, you know, the editors at the publisher said, you should take that out. It's just, a, it's, it's, you know, it's Tom Bombadil. But the story that I wish I had was, was the story about when they get home. Right? What do you say when you go back to your tradition and say, I had this experience, rocked my world, I'm back, I'm in, I'm in church Christmas Eve, <laughs> I'm back, but I'm not the same as I was, and uh, this all looks different to me now, and I'm back. It's, it's moments like that, it seems to me, for which the trope, it's complicated, you know, might have been cooked up. You can have your world rocked by another spiritual tradition and still find a way home. I, I find it instructive metaphorically that the path, literally, that they're, we're told they take home is different than the one they took there. And not just because they encountered something wonderful and postcardy, right? Because Herod was by any measure. A not well person with way too much power. So lots of things can rock our world, right? Change us. And then it can be hard to know what to say when we get home. Those gifts might not be the ones you were told were on offer inside these stories. They're not usually the ones that are on the list, you know? My hope, though is that although they might be unexpected, they might also, at least to some degree, be joyful surprises 
or at least gifts that carry with them some hope and some encouragement and even a little, a little spike of delight for those that choose to unwrap them uh, as part of exploring what they believe. That's what I hope. All right. Peace.